0: Now, if you would open your Bibles with me. We're looking at the book of Titus. We're in Titus chapter 3, moving along in this series Zealous for Good Works. Maybe you have a, a history as a racer, maybe you were a runner, a sprinter, a swimmer. Some of you are a little more uh, adrenaline junkies out there, and you get into a really fast car, and you like the sound of the rev of the engine. You know, races, most races are determined even before they begin. The official sounds the warning, ready, set, go. And if you've raced before, You know what it feels like. You know how your muscles tense up as you're ready to spring forward and give the race all that you have. In fact, racers go through the motions of a million practices, hoping to execute with perfection in that moment. In the racing world, readiness is everything. I mean, readiness means the difference between precious tenths of a second. Readiness is what will keep you going. Now, say you're an adept runner. Say you have a sprinter and she's incredible. She is fast. She's quick. But she false starts off the blocks or stumbles off the blocks or she's slow off the blocks. Well, We've seen that happen before. I did in my swimming career. (laughs) The official says, ready, set. The swimmer gets a little too excited. They lean forward. You hear a giant splash. (laughs) They're disqualified. Think about it. Ready, set, go. Much rests on a small moment in time, even before the race begins. Olympic dreams are made in that moment, or they are crushed in that moment. Readiness separates champions from runners-up. So let's talk about our series a little bit. We're in this series, Zealous for Good Works, and we've been walking through a series of steps that Paul is giving this church in Crete, and he's telling them, if you take these sort of steps, you will become that city on a hill that God intends you to be. Now first, we talked about the preaching ministry of the church. Pastor James led us in that sermon We then went into a discussion on leadership and why leadership is so essential for the health of the church. We then looked at teaching. And one of the aspects of the teaching of the church is how do you get the teaching into the people of the church? And the way you do that is you leverage the relationships of the church. But then right at the center of all, of course, is the grace of God because God alone gives grace. And when the grace of God is affected, effective, and appropriated in the life and body of a church. Boy, does that church have a lot of potential. Now today, we're going to take a look at readiness. Next week, we'll look at focus, and then we'll conclude the series with learning. So what is readiness? Well, think about a spring. A spring, when you compress it, stores energy. And we call this energy potential energy. We call it potential because it's not energy in motion yet. It is stored up energy waiting to be released. So readiness is not necessarily the church in motion. It's the church in terms of its attitude, its willingness. The church being Ready to make a choice. And that involves a state of mind. Now, in first titus or in Titus 3:1 through 7, Paul he's gonna challenge us to be ready in two ways. First, he's going to tell us that if you want to be a ready Christian or a ready church, you have to remain open to your community. And then second, He's going to tell us to remember the true potential of grace. If you forget the potential of grace, you will give up on people that God's not ready to give up on, and that's so important. So let's take a look at the text, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and we'll see these things this morning. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another." The saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Well, I got a little ahead there, but we'll talk about that next verse next week. (laughs) So let's get into readiness. Howard Hendricks once said this, I've never met a Christian who planned to live a mediocre life, but I have met plenty of mediocre Christians. Oh, of course, Howard Hendricks always has a way of creating those one liners that stick with you. How do you plan as a Christian to not become a mediocre Christian? I want to suggest this morning that part of it involves openness, In fact, I've been thinking about this as a value for my life, and I want to adopt this as a value for the rest of my life, and there's a phrase that's just stuck with me, and I'm, I'm starting to just use it a lot in my head, and even as I'm conversing with people, and the phrase is pretty simple, it's not very intelligent, I'm not a very intelligent guy. It's just, I choose to remain open to people. That's all it is. Now, initially, as I thought about that, I was like, oh, maybe it's more about trust. Maybe I need to choose to trust people, but that's not necessarily how trust works, is it? Trust is something that must be earned and even verified over time. If you extend trust too readily to a person, you might actually be gullible or naive, but you can always choose to remain open to a person. What does open mean? Well, open means that I choose to accept you even if I don't approve of everything you're doing. I choose not to close my life off to you even if I must establish some boundaries with you. You can always remain open toward people. You see, Paul is telling us to remain open in two ways in the text. He says this first remain open to your civic responsibilities. Look at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, why does Paul say, remind them to this church as he launches into their civic responsibility, submitting and obeying to authorities? Well, I think the answer is actually pretty simple. We have leaky memories, or I even want to say this, sometimes we have selective memories, right? I mean, as I think about this passage in my own life, isn't it convenient that sometimes I forget Paul's words when things are not going my way at the social political level? I mean, I quickly forget words like submit and obey when my particular party or candidate isn't in the white house i'll tell you church listen to me closely here i marvel at god's timing okay i just want to say it's almost as if the holy spirit knew that we needed to hear this verse in the midst of midterms being sorted out at the national level. I did not predetermine this. But think about what happens every four years and every two years. This year, it's like, oh, there's going to be a red wave. They're just going to splash over the country and They're going to take back control of Congress, and then everything's going to be made right again. And then four years ago, it was the same kind of thing. It's going to be a blue tsunami. What happens in your heart? How do you handle it when your wave turned out to be a trickle or a fizzle? And here's a really important question. Have you stopped talking to someone, a family member, a friend, another believer because of how they voted? I mean, these are serious things that are impacting relationships in our own country right now as we speak and if we as Christians would simply remember what Paul's saying here in verse one we could be the difference makers in our society in fact I want to say a couple of points really loud and clear this morning point number one Jesus is not a Republican now some of you are quietly amening right now, and I'm about to offend you too. Jesus is not a democrat. Jesus, in the scriptures, we are told is Lord. And as Lord, His agenda does not neatly line up with one of the political platforms that are out there. He's not about politicizing everything. He has a much different agenda than Republicans and Democrats do. His agenda involves reaching people who are far from God. That's his agenda. It's about gospel advancement, which leads me to another point. Gospel advancement is negatively impacted when we only honor the authority we agree with. You got that? When you only honor the authority you agree with, as a Christian community, we end up looking more like the base of a political party than citizens from a different kingdom altogether. So instead of asking... How can I expose the other party? What if Christians started asking a better question? What if we started saying, how can I become an incredible citizen in my nation and serve others and and shine the light of Jesus Christ like I am called to shine? One more point, and then I'll get off of this because I know I'm meddling. Number three, gospel advancement is negatively impacted when we close ourselves off to people over politics so here's a quote that is going to stick with me for the rest of my life write it down if you got pen and paper jesus came to turn his enemy into friends some of you some of us have made the other party into our enemies Jesus came to turn his enemy into friends, his friends into family, and his family into joyful participants in his mission. That's what we need to be about. That's Jesus' agenda. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul follows his words on civic responsibility with verse 2? He says, Now remind them to speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So now he's moving from the civic realm to being open to people in general. Now, how does openness create potential for the gospel? Well, it's pretty simple. The gospel advances best through neighbor love. You got that? It advances best through neighbor love. I have a good book on my shelf. I love the title of the book. It's just simply The Art of Neighboring. Now, in this book, The Art of Neighboring, they tell the story of community pastors gathering together with a a local mayor of the city and They asked the mayor a question, how might we, the church, serve our community better? And of course, as you start asking questions like that, you see a lot of the problems that exist within a community. So listen to some of their problems, at-risk kids, Areas with dilapidated housing, child hunger, drug and alcohol abuse, loneliness, elderly shut-ins with no one to drive them to places where they need to go. And let me just say this, if you step out in between services and go to that community needs wall, you'll see that the same types of problems exist in our own community, in our own backyard. And it kind of makes me sad when I think about it. Here we are, communities with all these problems, and in every single one of those communities, there are churches. Maybe we need to do something about these things. Well, listen what the mayor says in the middle of this conversation. It it really just struck me. He said, The majority of the issues that our community is facing would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors. Did you hear that? The second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let it settle in. How do we typically handle the problems that we face within our community? Well, here's what I've noticed in my experience people tend to observe a problem. And you know what they do right away? They get like frustrated and antsy about the problem and they walk right up to a leader. Maybe it's a pastor who's spinning like 50,000 plates at the same time or it's a civic leader who's doing the same thing. And they go up to that person and they say, I'm noticing this problem and you need to do something about it. Now, I get why you're doing that. Why do you go tell a leader? You tell a leader because one of the leadership responsibilities is solving problems. But here's what I've noticed in my experience. Programs don't tend to help people most effectively. You know who do? Neighbors. Neighbors help people most effectively. What happens when one, two, or three people are mindful of an elderly shut-in? Well, all of a sudden, they're thinking about this person regularly. They're saying, you know, I can get them to their medical appointment or I can help them get groceries or they desperately want to be in church. I can, I can drive them there. What happens when, when a parent who they already have three kids and, and their life's a little spread thin as it is, but then they just make a decisive decision in their heart and they say, you know what? I have more love to give. Yes, these are my children. It's a stewardship delegation from God, but I believe God has more love for me to give. And they grab one of the at-risk kids that the friends are playing with, and they invest in that kid's life day after day. You see, when you start thinking about it, The reason that we have a vision here to inspire, train, and mobilize transformative leaders is when all the problems are kind of just thrown up at the top and say, you do something about this, it needs to be accomplished. Well, one person can only do so much, but what happens when a group of 100 or 200 people do not become Problem identifiers, they become problem solvers. Changes a lot, doesn't it? I think you could see the impact that that would have. How do we become these kind of people that love our neighbors? How do we remain open? Well, Paul gives us a negative piece of instruction and then a positive piece of instruction. The negative has to do with the way we use our tongue. You see what he says there? He says, do not speak evil of anyone. Avoid quarreling. It turns out that the mouth can truly destroy openness and community. In fact, there are two toxic ways we use the tongue that will completely keep us from getting off the starting blocks One is gossip, and the other is slander. Scott Sauls compares these activities to pornography usage. He says, both seek thrills at another person's expense while making zero commitment to the other person. Contrary to love, gossip objectifies and depersonalizes. Slander takes gossip to another level. An Old Testament scholar said that slander is essentially like throwing acid upon the face of another person's reputation. These two forms of speech are word porn. And they have no business in the church. No business in the Christian's life. So then, how should we live? Well, Paul positively says, be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's really about opening yourself up to the people around you, isn't it? And the more that you adopt this value, the more you open up grace potential and gospel potential with the people that you interact with. Think about The last time you went to a restaurant, you sat down at the table, you ordered food from a server. What's their name? Do you know anything about them? Maybe you frequent this place, maybe you've been there 10, 15, 20 times in the past year. Do you still not know their name? I'll tell you, um, I'm gonna embarrass her, but Becky Serhall is incredible at this. I've gone out to dinner with her, and and she knows people's names, and she's asking them about their kids and their story. And I'll tell you what, it changes the dynamic entirely when you open yourself up to a person like that. I try to make it a practice too. I've heard about people's joys. I've shed tears with someone. It, it, It really changes everything when we approach the world this way. Openness involves the little things, and it creates potential for grace conversations. Now, there are three attitudes I want to suggest this morning that will keep us on the starting blocks, that will prevent us from realizing the potential of grace. The first attitude I want to suggest is ignorance. And I'm calling ignorance an attitude because ignorance can be a choice that we make. It can be a choice. And ignorance always leads to misunderstanding. It's just how it is. I was reading about a Christian man in his neighborhood, and he called code enforcement on one of his neighbors. Well, come on. We all have had that neighbor that let their house go and you started feeling a little salty about it. Just be honest with yourself today. The grass was getting way too high. It was just looking a little discombobulated over there and you saw your property value doing this, right? Well, he's looking across the street Two broken down cars in the driveway. Garage door falling off the hinges. paint The whole house could have used a coat of paint. The grass is about three feet high. And he's just sick with it. He's frustrated. He calls code enforcement. And then he's having an off chance conversation with his neighbor. And he learns the story. She lives by herself. Her mom has cancer she's left work. she's no longer employed and for months she's been at her mom's bedside for 24 hours a day how does that little bit of information reframe the story for you information can mean the difference between frustration and compassion how do you know Which of those two emotions you're supposed to feel about a situation until you've taken time to learn about the situation? And here you have this gentleman. He felt about this small after hearing that story, and he turned it around. He got the neighbors together, and they brought her back up to code on their own dime and with their own energy. Let's talk about another attitude, fear. Fear can also be an attitude that fosters misunderstanding. Why do we avoid serving our neighbors? Well, maybe we're afraid of what it might cost us, or maybe we're afraid of the ambiguity. I don't know what that person's like. I don't know where they've come from. I might be opening myself up to being susceptible to something that I shouldn't. Okay, there might be some wisdom there. How do you know? Churches can let fear prevent us from being really good neighbors to our community. What if we open up the doors of the church and we have these community events and we get that bounce house out there and a kid breaks their leg and sues us? We better not do those kind of things. Well, listen, y'all. That's why we got insurance, right? Right? And we buy really expensive insurance every year just in case that thing happens. And if we need to buy more expensive insurance the next year, let's do that instead of the alternative. Also, I think churches can adopt this attitude because we don't want to be associated with what is called the social gospel. Are you familiar with that term? Let me explain it. The social gospel is a gospel that says Jesus died so that we might practice tangible acts of love here and now. It teaches that Jesus didn't die for our sins necessarily. It wasn't a sacrificial atonement on the cross. It was so that we might become more selfless and loving to the people around us. So Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, isn't about... Eternal heaven, the kingdom of heaven, according to the social gospel, is about bringing heaven onto earth right now in this sin stricken world. And let me just say this unequivocally that is a false gospel. It's false. You can't save a single person by proclaiming that kind of gospel. The greatest need of any human being is their sin problem, and people must place their faith in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Simply doing nice things for people without telling them about Jesus will not save a single person. Not one. But having said that, is it like, best to counteract the social gospel by the church pulling back from mercy ministry? Well, I would say that you don't counteract it best by avoiding it. I say you counteract it best by demonstrating a powerful alternative. And that's what we're called to do. Our ministry is an attempt to show love to our neighbors because it glorifies God and because it provides this powerful platform to proclaim salvation alone in jesus christ alone and my commitment to you as your pastor as we move forward with community-based outreach is this i will try my best to never ever do any kind of ministry that compromises or confuses the gospel i'm not interested in that But I am interested in leading a ministry that is in line with the heart of God. And as I look at God, I see a compassionate God, a merciful God, a just God. And his people are to be like he is. The third attitude is disdain. You see, disdain is that subtle feeling that I am superior to you. It's that smug attitude where I think in my own heart, I'm doing all the right things that they're not doing, or the smug attitude where I say in my own heart, I would never be in the position that they're in right now. I never would have done what they've done. Disdain will keep you on the starting blocks. You will false start with this sort of attitude. You see, Paul counteracts these attitudes in two ways. In verse 3, first, he calls us to be humble about our sinful pasts. And then you'll notice in verses 4 through 7 that he calls us to remember the new potential that grace creates in all people's lives. Verse 3, for we ourselves. You like how he does that? It's not for you were once. He says for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. That's what we were like before Christ, the BC days. You remember what Jesus said in that Beatitude, Matthew 5, 4? He said, blessed are the poor in what? Spirit. So not materially poor, but those who understand themselves to be spiritually poor. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, poor in spirit is this understanding that apart from the grace of God, I am spiritually bankrupt. Okay, when you are in a position of bankruptcy, it doesn't matter if you're paying off small bills on the side here and there, you're doing good deeds here and there, You are bankrupt. You can't afford to pay off the overwhelming debt that's hanging over your head. And so the person that recognizes that, Jesus says, is blessed. And that puts them in a position to turn to that free generosity of God at infinite cost to himself to save them. Now, what if Tim Keller asks this question, What if you're not poor in spirit? What does that look like? Well, it might look like you saying to yourself, "Eh, you know, I know I've done some things here and there, but I'm really not so sinful of a person. It it might be an attitude where you walk about and you think to yourself, you know, me and God got it pretty good and he's kind of lucky to have me right now. And, you know, because he's lucky to have me He ought to answer my prayers. He ought to bless my life. Now, the Bible never coins this term, but Keller says, if that's how you view God, you have adopted not poor in spirit as an attitude, but middle class in spirit. You feel you've earned a certain standing with God. You believe that your success, your resources They hinge primarily upon your own abilities, your own smarts, your own talents. I said this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about grace. Jesus in Christianity does not discriminate between good people and bad people. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Your Good deeds, according to the scriptures, are like worthless rags before God. There is not a category of good people and bad people. There are bad people who need salvation in Jesus Christ. So then, if that's true, Christianity doesn't distinguish between that. It discriminates between humble people and proud people. Friend, Whatever walls you've built up in your heart, in your life, where you say, I'm good enough, I'm qualified for God, you got to destroy that wall with the anvil, the sledgehammer of humility. Humility will unlock your potential to receive grace. It will also unlock your potential to then extend Grace to other people. I love what Keller says to the degree that the gospel shapes your self image, you will identify with those in need. Is the gospel shaping your self image? Listen to it again. I'm going to read verses four through seven. It's a powerful articulation of this gospel. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What a wonderfully succinct summation of the whole of salvation. Uh, Who saved us? Well, that's pretty easy. God did. And what did we do? Well, that's also pretty easy. Nothing. How did he do it? He freely gave his precious son at infinite cost to himself and what does this grace change for us everything presently you are being changed degree by degree how by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the holy spirit degree by degree to look more like jesus and in eternity you will inherit eternal life what more is there to say There's nothing else if God's done this for you. If he's radically changed in your life to that degree, what can he do in other people's lives too? If he can operate in grace with you, he can operate in grace in the life of your next door neighbor. Or that politician that you just think is so smarmy. Or that drug addict that you're like, yep, knew they were gonna do it again and they did it again. Or that alcoholic who did the same thing. Or that homeless woman that you look at and you think, what did she do to get there? Or that extreme skeptic who you say, they're never gonna trust Jesus Christ. They're always saying that they're against him. Or that prisoner or that person that you just look at and you think they're unapproachable, they've got it all, what need do they have for God? Do you see the true potential of grace? It's limitless. So we only need to unleash it. And the way we unleash it is by being ready to respond with our words, and with our deeds. And let me say this this morning. Maybe you're here today and you have not realized that potential of grace. How do you realize the potential of grace? Well, the scriptures are very clear. Jesus died on the cross in your place. You couldn't satisfy God's just demands for your sin problem, but Jesus could and he did it for you. And Jesus rose again from the dead. He verified that he was enough to satisfy God's demands. So the question that I have before you this morning is, are you ready? Are you ready to receive that full potential of total forgiveness from God that new potential of grace, where not only are you saved in eternity future, but God's saving you right now, and he's going to change you degree by degree. Are you ready? Well, how do I lay claim to that grace? Well, the Bible says you do it by placing your faith in the Son of God, Jesus. Scripture says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Today, here, right now, in this moment, if you believe, you will be saved. Friend, let me just ask you this. If I'm giving you a gift, how do you receive that gift? I think it's a pretty simple question, isn't it? You have to take hold of the gift. You have to grab the gift. You have to embrace the gift. If you leave me hanging with the gift in my hand, do you ever receive the benefit of the gift? Of course not. So I want to give you the opportunity this morning, if you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, to lay claim to the gift of eternal life and salvation. Can I ask you all to please bow your heads? And I'm just going to lead you in a simple prayer. Prayer is simple. Simple. You're just simply telling Jesus that you trust him, that you're ready to lay claim to the potential of grace in your life. Pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior and risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment as best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and your control. Amen. Amen. And if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, I'm telling you, you've got the potential of grace in your life. And we're about to celebrate that this morning as Doug comes forward and leads us in communion.